Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is February the 4th, 2021. Lunchtime on the West Coast. We are 10 days away from Valentine's Day, uh, that intimate festival of love, uh, a festival where we're supposed to get together with our our love, our most intimate friend, and enjoy ourselves. This year, we're not going to go out, be able to go out for dinner, uh, but we can certainly spend time at home. Uh, that idea of love, that intimacy, the privacy of love, though, is challenged by my guest today. Uh, a few months after Valentine's Day, at least in Europe, is May Day, uh, May 1st in Europe, which is celebrated as International Labor Day. Uh, the Labor Day Festival happens a few months later in the United States. Uh, but my guest today, Sarah Jaffe, the author of a really intriguing new book, Wo uh, Work Won't Love You Back, seems to be suggesting that perhaps we should combine Valentine's Day and Labor Day. Uh, Sarah, is that a good idea? Should Valentine's Day be the day we go out on the streets as they do on May 1st in Europe? I mean, I think we should be in the streets every day. So I'm in favor of more workers' holidays. Um, it is funny, we'd been joking about like, is anybody gonna give us a Valentine's Day lead in for this book? <laughs> I guess we did ask for it by having a red cover and, and putting the word love in it, right? Yeah, so, uh, but in all seriousness, your book is, in many ways, it's of course a polemic about work, but more importantly, I think it's a polemic about love and the centrality, at least in your view, love should have in uh, our strange, troubling 21st century world. Strange and troubling is a good couple of words for it, I think, isn't it? Um, and it is going to be such a weird, I mean, I'm, I'm feeling Groundhog Day, speaking of holidays, like I'm feeling like I'm stuck in the Bill Murray movie where every day is the same. Um, the things about work that might have seemed different are just like now I'm on book tour, which normally would involve traveling. And instead, I'm just sitting in the same space talking to different people every day. <laughs> on the but, same platforms, not all the platforms even work, Sarah, right? We're, we're on Zoom, right? That, that platform of love, or at least love, <laughs> the best amount of love that we can do in, in, in COVID times. Today was also, uh, well, a couple of days ago, the headlines were full of the news that Jeff Bezos was stepping down. Uh, I don't know how many billions of dollars he's worth. No doubt, eventually, he'll become the first trillion-dollar man. A lot of people have commented on Bezos as the equivalent of Henry Ford, just as Henry Ford and his theory of work was the, of Fordism, was the, the theory of labor in the 20th century. Bezos's uh, re-architecting of work and labor and capital uh, defines the 21st century. At the beginning of your book, 
you talk about Fordism being the the, the, the key contract that defined the relationship between uh, worker and capitalist in the 20th century. What was Fordism, um, Sarah? Yeah, so Fordism was first used to describe the work of the assembly line, right? So cars were made with a car going down the line and one worker doing one task each way. But it also became the term for the sort of bargain between capital and labor that a bunch of workers would show up at Henry Ford's plant or General Motors' plant or any number of other people's plants and do their work for a set amount of time. And within that, they would get a decent wage. Henry Ford was famous for first paying the $5 day back when $5 was still a large amount of money to be paid for one day's work. And that would guarantee you a decent, you know, if you were the worker, that would guarantee you a decent living. That would give you some time off. You could buy nice things. Famously, Henry Ford wanted you to buy a Ford car with that $5 day. And for Henry Ford, it meant smooth production without labor struggles messing things up. So that bargain really defined the age that we talk about in this country a lot as having built the middle class. And that bargain has you know, fallen apart. And part of the thing that I argue in this book that has fallen apart is that those jobs have been outsourced, they've been automated, they're, they're mostly gone, right? There are just far, far fewer jobs in that kind of Fordist factory than there used to be. And instead, you know, Jeff Bezos is definitely trying to redefine everything in his own image. But I actually would say still that the company that really redefined work that we're living in the shadow of is actually Walmart. And a lot of the innovations that Jeff Bezos is working on were first put forward by Walmart who invented like say the massive distribution center that things aren't warehoused in so much as they're moved through very quickly. And the data that Bezos has again sort of improved upon, this was something that Walmart really um, innovated first. But the other thing that Walmart really did well, which is key to how we work in the 21st century, was capitalize on the sort of emotional investment of women in doing service labor. And so that's actually really why um, historian Bethany Morton, who I cite in the book somewhere, says, you know, the thing that has happened post-Fordism, we could give the title of Walmartism. Walmartism is perhaps another word for this shift from Henry Ford's proletariat to Walmart or, or, or Amazon's precariat. We've had a lot of conversations on the show before, uh, Sarah, about the emergence of this precariat. We had um, Jessica Bruder, the author of Nomadland. There's a new movie coming out uh, this year on that. Are you suggesting that the precariat then needs to be understood in its feminized context? I think you can't understand the changes that have happened in work without changing understanding of who the working class is. And so something that I think that Nomadland book did very well was sort of look at like, this is actually who the workers are now and the various ways in which they've been made more precarious. A lot of that again, stems back to this, you know, famous innovation of, of uh, Sam Walton that you could hire women who had been, you know, in the Ozarks where Walmart got started, had been mostly farm wives who did a lot of work, but didn't really receive a wage for it. And so when they went into a workplace where they were going to be paid for the first time, the expectation was not that they were going to get the kind of family sustaining wage, 
the updated version of Henry Ford's $5 day, but actually that they were just making some a little money around the edges. And from that idea that, you know, you don't actually have to pay workers enough to live on, we've expanded an entire economy of workers who are not paid enough to live on. I think one interesting comparison between Amazon and Walmart would be in the work ethic, and I use that word deliberately, between Sam Walton and Jeff Bezos. Walton seems to epitomize Weber's notion of the, the Protestant hard work, not indulging in, 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 in consumerism. Um, somehow work realizes salvation. Whereas Bezos represents a, a, a very different, a, a Silicon Valley version of work in which there's no boundary between work and play and between work and life. Is that fair? I mean, again, I think, you know, Jeff Bezos is sort of famous for Amazon being actually kind of a terrible place to work, even for white collar workers. There was a Except for himself. Recently um, about that. But there's definitely this idea in, in Silicon Valley, in places like Google and Facebook as well, that the workplace is going to be fun you're going to sort of have everything you need in this workplace so you know you get fed you get you can bring your dog there's a pool table maybe or ping pong tables or whatever it is um elon musk famously offered the workers who were making the teslas a roller coaster and frozen yogurt machine when they wanted a union you know it's this idea that like oh we'll just like give you some toys and that'll be fine right and again, you know, it, it, it misses the point that like what people actually need is their job to pay them enough to live on and to not work us to death. So, yeah, I mean, I think Sam Walton also, we, we should note, like spent plenty of his money and his family consumes a whole lot of wealth and uh, has, you know, continues to get richer. And the, the shtick of the pickup truck and the baseball cap is also a sales pitch. It's not actually an accurate depiction of like how Sam Walton lived his life. It's just an accurate depiction of how Sam Walton wanted to be seen living his life. Sarah, do you have a, an ideal moment or snapshot in history or geography of when worked, excuse the pun, worked, uh, no. when work worked? We had James Sussman on the show, the author yeah. of another book on work, another big blockbuster like yours in which he goes back to Africa, to pre-industrial tribes, to, he's an anthropologist, mm -hmm. different from you in terms of his intellectual discipline, but tries to find some truth about work from pre-industrial African tribes. Where's your truth derived from? Where do you dig? Is that an appropriate way of thinking about it? Or you're not a digger, you're not an archeologist. I'm not an archeologist, I'm just a journalist, just a humble journalist. I get my stories by talking to people and reading. Um, I don't think that there was ever a moment in time where work was good. I don't want to go back in time because, I mean, you can tell I'm a woman. It has historically not been great to be a woman in the workplace. Still pretty much isn't great to be a woman in the workplace in a lot of cases. Um, I don't think that there we are going to improve things by turning the clock back to Fordism or back to, you know, feudalism. I don't know. Like what, what historical system would be better I think we need to invent a better one. And that's actually the question that I'm asking a lot of the workers that I'm talking to in this book is, is very few of them want to go back in time. They want to actually move forward to something that they might actually have more of a say in creating. 
Yeah, I like that about the book. And uh, it's always too easy to fall back on nostalgia. One of the other guests on our show recently, Michael Lind, who has a new book out, again, around the issue of work. His book is called New Class War, wants to go back to that post-war world of unions, where unions were strong and they represented this, in, uh, this mediation between individuals and the state. I assume that you're not an idealizer of that post-war 1950s or 60s America. I mean, I think a lot of workers would probably benefit from having a union, but we have to remember that that period was only good for some workers, right? That the Fordist compromise only worked for workers who were in the Fordist factory. That even then there were a lot of people who were locked out of things like, you know, lab legal labor protections. So, you know, before we had the gig economy where, you know, Uber drivers and, and Lyft drivers and the rest of them are locked out of American labor law, we had domestic workers and farm workers locked out of American labor law. And that was, of course, a very important compromise made between the Roosevelt administration and the New Deal Democrats with Southern Democrats who did not want to give black workers any rights. So, you know, I think nostalgia gave us Trumpism and I don't find that a terribly fruitful place to go. I agree. We had um, uh, uh, an author on talking about his book, Hard Hat Riot, uh, James Kuhn, uh, talking about the sort of the birth of cultural populism in 19, in late 60s America in response to the Kent State Massacre and the counterculture. So. I, I think that point is well taken that unions aren't the solution either. So where, where do well, we look I, for this? I, I, I don't misquote me on that. Unions are a very, very big part of the solution. What is not a, the solution is going back to 1945. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I won't misquote you. I will not dare to misquote you, Sarah, on that. Uh, Sarah believes in unions, just not going back necessarily to the unions of 1945. Let's, let's think forward then, Sarah. Uh, what about technology and the role of technology in liberating us from work? This is an old theme on the left. Marx, of course, famously wrote about it in his German ideology, the idea of technology freeing us to be human, um, to realize ourselves. We've had a number of people on the show talking about this, perhaps the most distinguished, my friend Albert Wenger, the Union Square Ventures, uh, partner who imagines life after capital, where we are freed by technology to realize ourselves. We've also had Scott Santons on the show talking about a universal basic income, another perpetual theme that you touch on in the book. What do you think the role can be of technology, particularly tech, digital technology, in liberating ourselves from the darker forces of work, of labor? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question, right? Because there's absolutely no doubt that as I was saying earlier, right, that automation has played a role in certain jobs no longer really being around. Um, and it's absolutely true that we have technologies that can do a lot of things that humans couldn't do or that humans were doing before. But I think the question is, and I'm, I'm certainly interested in the idea of a basic income as are some of the people that I write about in this book, but I do wonder, are, you know, if Jeff Bezos, again, is the one who controls all the technology, you know, I was just reading today about the surveillance cameras that they're putting in, in mm -hmm. Amazon, you know, driver's trucks, and they're saying, oh, this is for safety. And the drivers are saying, this feels like Big Brother. So 
I think the question of technology often revolves around who's actually controlling and designing the technology and for what purpose is it being used? And so far, you know, we see a lot of technology being used to create things like smile scanners to make sure that you're smiling on the job and surveillance cameras to make sure that you're smiling on the job. And, you know, I, I was on a panel not that long ago with a postal worker from the UK, actually, who was telling us about uh, the gadget that they have that they scan packages with also has like a yellow dot on it. And if you take too long at any one address, the GPS enabled dot just starts to grow and get bigger and bigger and slowly take over your screen. Mm. And like, that is certainly the opposite of liberation from anything, right? She can't stop and sort of give somebody directions in the neighborhood or, or check on somebody if, you know, especially in a pandemic, if she's, you know, worried about one of the people she delivers mail to, she can't actually stop and check on them because the yellow dot will just grow and grow. So the potential of technology is, is great, but who's controlling it, who's designing it, and who gets to profit from it is the real question. And is does that get, you know, do the gains from it get distributed equally? Like there have been cases like the, um, the Longshore Workers Union on the West Coast in the US has famously bargained for, you know, when there are improvements in the technology that unloads containers from ships, the workers were able to you know, distribute that as shorter working hours and more benefits for the workers. And that's great because they are not breaking their backs as much, lifting big heavy things that they used to unload by hand. And also they get the benefit of actually a shorter working week out of it. So things like that could be wonderful, but you know, the, <laughs> I wonder how well that's going to work in a lot of cases. Mm, well, welcome to the, the age of surveillance capitalism. We had Shoshana Zuboff on the show a year or two ago talking about that age and I think your your warnings are well taken. We began this conversation, Sarah, talking about Valentine's Day and love. Let's return there because I think that's the intellectual heart uh, of your book. I had the Turkish journalist Ece Temelkuren on the show uh, a few months ago. She's a friend, she's a wonderful writer and speaker. Yeah, I just listened to a wonderful interview with her actually. Yeah, she's, she's tremendous on lots of fronts. I, I actually uh, made a movie called How to Fix Democracy last year, and we visited her in exile in Zagreb in Croatia. Wow. And she spoke to me about her experience at Gezi in Occupy uh, in, in Turkey in the resistance against the Erdogan regime. And she said, the love, the, com the camaraderie, the connectivity between her and the crowd was the the pinnacle, at least in political terms of her life. And I think she's planning to write a book about love and politics and resistance. You write about Occupy, you also write about a number of other political movements. Have you personally experienced that, the, the meaningfulness of, of, of human to human love in a political context? Yeah, I, I really want to read that book that she's going to write now. That sounds great. I think one of the things that, that we call solidarity, right, is this feeling of being in a struggle together with people who are there to take care of each other in a way, right? And it's, it's a really incredible moment. I'm thinking of the strike here in New York at the Hunts Point Terminal Market that just went off, you know, ended last week. And one of the things that happened that, that made the workers successful was that so many people came to join them. 
And I think, you know, especially in this moment when we've all been locked up in our houses and like, hi, I live alone in a pandemic. I haven't like talked to a person more face to face than I'm talking to you right now in a while. And I think that, you know, that contributes to the size of say like the Black Lives Matter protests last spring and summer and the desire for people that come out and connect with each other. I think is is incredible and I just you know what's going to happen when we actually get to live our lives again after pandemic life. I think it's an incredible moment and I think it's important you know Valentine's Day is great if you're all coupled up and want to have a wonderful Valentine's Day mazel tov. But also I think that we miss sort of the the love and relationships that we have that are not just sort of in the immediate family or the immediate couple form and actually the way that there are different kinds of relationships that are still meaningful to us that like you might be locked up with one person for the last six months but really miss everybody else in your life and I mean I wrote this book before the pandemic and then had to edit it in lockdown and so to think about a lot of these things in a different way and I've only spent more time thinking about how the things we have to do every day sort of take us away from the things that might actually bring us joy and also like might help us think about a society that actually cares for people and that isn't just sort of okay with like you know to get depressing for a second like we're closing in on 500,000 people dead just in this country from coronavirus and and it didn't have to be that way other countries have not normalized mass death the way we have here. And I think that's part of the story too. One of the other things I like about the book is you introduced me to um, a, a European feminist theorist who now lives, I think, in the United States. I'm, I'm not actually sure if she's still alive, um, who I didn't know much about, but actually fits very much into your theory, where of course, Unfortunately, I think inundated with Hannah Arendt these days, every critique of authoritarianism goes back to Arendt yeah. and her rather hard, bloodless um, return to Aristotle and the, the virtues of political and public life. Mm -hmm. But you introduced me to an alternative political theorist who I think is quite interesting, Sylvia Federici. Sylvia Federici, uh, and uh, you have some wonderful quotes from her. One of the quotes is from, from Sylvia Federici. We want to call work what is work so that eventually we might rediscover what is love. And then she has another wonderful quote, and you write about this at the end, um, uh, about uh, Plato and uh, love. Let me just check where this is. But you might talk a little bit about Federici, how you discovered her and what her core political philosophy actually is. Yeah, so Silvia Federici comes out of the Wages for Housework movement. And actually that first quote that you read there is from a pamphlet called Wages Against Housework, which was written in 1970. I don't remember the date off the top is of my head. Is she still around, Silvia Federici? Yes, yes. Yeah. I believe she's in New York. Um, the last time I saw her was in New York anyway. Mm. Um, so the Wages for Housework struggle was a, a feminist movement that actually started in Italy in the 1970s and which is where Federici is from and then had a branch in New York, um, in the UK, in a bunch of places and was really calling for us to think about the way that we value the work that gets done in the home, which I think, again, we are all stuck at home right now. We're all thinking a lot about the work that gets done in the home. I am personally thinking about the mess that my kitchen is and how I need to clean it in the spare time that I do not currently have. 
But the struggle was also importantly about the way that the division of labor where, you know, you assume that a man goes to work and a woman stays home and does the housework. And this was still mostly true in the 1970s when they got started, that also screws up our relationships to each other, right? There's a line from Selma James, who's another foundational thinker of this movement about um, it being a miracle that under all of this that men and women still love each other and that they try is a beautiful thing. Um, that movement, you know, was, was founded at the same time as a bunch of other sort of revolutionary strands were happening in Italy, um, you know, the Aparismo, which was a workerism movement. And these were reconsiderations of factory work in, you know, a rapidly changing period of capitalism that of course now we've, we've ended up where we are here. And yeah, I think that it's, there's sort of been a resurgence of this almost in response to like Sheryl Sandberg's lean in kind of girl boss feminism of people saying like, wait a minute, actually we haven't solved some of these really fundamental questions. And in many cases, the, the, the housework question gets solved just by hiring a woman who has less power and less status to clean our homes for us. Probably no, part of the precariat through some sort of Amazon style um, yeah, operation where you you bring people in and pay them by the job. Uh, Federici has a couple of other great quotes you, you yeah. give in the book. She says, if only you could have an army of lovers, that army would be invincible. And then she said, talking about love, it's the great anti-individuality. It's the great communizer. So is it only through love that we can join others? Not literally, but figuratively. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, I don't think, one of the things that I think is really interesting about um, the idea of solidarity, the idea of, of the crowd, like you were talking about before, um, is that, you know, in those spaces, like I don't know most of these people, I will never probably see many of them again. But the, the affect that you sort of feel in that moment is that we are all in this thing together. And that actually strikes me as a much better thing to build a society around than this endless idea of competition. And we have to struggle really hard in order to, you know, sell the most books and do get all the freelance articles. Not that I'm talking about my life in any way. And that, you know, that we've, we've sort of shrunk our horizons both of work but also of love down to the couple and the sort of immediacy and again I, I can't stress enough how much I think COVID has sort of highlighted all of this um, and I think we've been talking about some of my favorite women we can quote one of my least favorite um, and you know the Margaret Thatcher line there is no such thing as society there are individual mm -hmm. men and women and there are families um, yeah like how do we actually break out of that and think about a world that doesn't require us to be valued on sort of our individual output or who we are immediately related to, but actually as people who are valuable because we are people. I think again, not to sort of get back to being really depressing about the pandemic, but we're in a pandemic and I think we're all a little depressed. And the thing that, you know, has, I think normalized death and you see a lot of this sort of argument that like well the people who are dying would have died soon anyway we have sort of elderly people people with disabilities and pre-existing conditions and the idea that like because they're not productive anymore it kind of doesn't matter if they die is is really horrifying 
You know, I, I just like, I'm stunned when like, who, uh, what's his name? The Lieutenant governor of Texas, who was like, yeah, I think grandparents would be They're happy to die about, yeah. a, you know, and you're just like, I don't want my grandma to die so that the economy can reopen. Well, if, <laughs> uh, if, 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 if you're hungry for love, read work, won't love you back. It's a work, a book brimming over with love, uh, love for each other and for trying to figure out this, perhaps the great question, the greatest of all questions uh, of the early 21st century. How are we gonna reinvent? How are we gonna re-architect love so that we are no longer exploited, exhausted, and alone? Uh, finally, Sarah, I'll let you get back to washing your kitchen, but um, <laughs> the one thing that struck me about the book, I always read the acknowledgements of a book because I think it always reveals the most about uh, the author. In my, my acknowledgements in my book, which is why no one ever reads them, I was under acknowledgements, I say none because I'm a classic male who only wants to work on his own, but your, your <laughs> acknowledgement section was about four or five pages long and had a long list of people. It was again, yeah. brimming over with love. Um, is that the best way to write a book collectively? You seem to suggest that this book has come out of, of, of a collective experience with you and your friends and your intellectual, um, your, your intellectual partners. Yeah, I realized the other day that I was chatting with somebody in person for the first time in weeks and weeks. And I like, all of these things are coming out of my mouth and I'm like, oh, right. I think best in conversation. And this is why I love being a reporter, right? That like, you know, fundamentally my book was written in conversation with sort of 10 people who are the main characters of each chapter. Um, and that actually, I think is where the best ideas come from. And yes, my, my acknowledgements pages are legion and there are many, many people in there who are wonderful, who have written things that inspired me and told me things and had long conversations in pubs back when those were things we could go to. And I, yeah, I just, I, I, you're getting me right in the heart here, man, because like, I've just been thinking about all of this stuff more and more and more since, you know, committing the book to the printers. Well, you have a big heart, Sarah, and your book is full of heart. Um, and I found this conversation, as you say, to be very, stimulating and engaging and meaningful. I really wish you a happy and healthy 2021. Congratulations on a wonderful book. And I look forward to having you back on the show to talk more. This is a huge subject. We've really only touched the surface. So I look forward to having you back on the show, uh, perhaps this year or certainly next, maybe we can get you on the show with Air Chair as well to talk about work and women and how we're gonna make the world a better place. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.